0: Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to season seven of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is episode seven-eight, Milosevic and Yugoslavia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. After World War II. The Communist Party of Yugoslavia, led by Josep Tito, takes over the nation. Josep Tito dies in 1980 and ethnic tensions in Yugoslavia begin to appear. With the Cold War coming to an end, Yugoslavia goes through an economic crisis. Slobodan Milosevic rises to power by harnessing Serb nationalism. And with that, let's discuss the early life and career of Slobodan Milosevic. Slobodan Milosevic, Part 2 He was the leader of the Serbs during the Balkan conflict and at least partially responsible for the rise of Serb nationalism. His role in Yugoslavia has been compared to Hitler's role in Germany and Mussolini's in Italy. Slobodan Milosevic was born on August 20, 1941, in Pujarovac, a town in Serbia about 75 miles south of the capital, Belgrade. World War II devastated Yugoslavia, leaving nearly a million people dead, most of them Serbs. His parents separated after the war. Like most young, ambitious men in Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic joined the Communist Party in 1959 at the age of 18. Slobodan's father, Svetojar Milosevic, was a deacon and scholar in the Orthodox Church. Svetojar fell into a deep depression when one of his students, whom he'd given a low grade, committed suicide. In 1962, Svetoša Milosević shot himself in the head with a shotgun. Slobodan was in Russia when his father killed himself and did not even bother to attend the funeral. The following year, Slobodan's maternal uncle, an army general, also shot himself in the head. This may have led his mother, Stanislava, to commit suicide as well. She hanged herself in 1972. Slobodan Milosevic owed much of his success to Ivan Stambolic, future president of Yugoslavia. It is ironic that Slobodan will later have him killed. Stambolic gave Milosevic a job at the Serbian gas company. When Stambolic became head of the Chamber of Commerce, he helped Milosevic become president of Biogradska Banka, Belgrade's largest bank. While working at the bank, Milosevic interacted with many Americans and learned how to speak English very well. Milosevic also followed Stambolic when he left the private sector to go into politics. In 1982, Stambolic became the leader of the Belgrade Division of the Communist League of Serbia, or CKJ. That same year, Milosevic became one of the district leaders of the Belgrade Division of CKJ. In 1984, Stambolic became the president of CKJ, while Milosevic took his place as the leader of the Belgrade Division. And in 1986, when Ivan Stambolic became president of Serbia, Milosevic took his place as president of the Communist League of Serbia. We discussed the events that took place in Kosovo in 1987 in the previous episode. Nonetheless, a brief recap may be in order. Slobodan Milosevic used the unrest in Kosovo to push a nationalist agenda. Ivan Stambolic tried to discipline him, but that eventually cost him his job. Milosevic outmaneuvered Stambolic by installing his own supporters in key positions and getting his mentor and former friend removed from office. Pitar Gracanin, a Milosevic supporter, succeeded Stambolic as president of Serbia. Now Milosevic was free to move forward with his nationalist agenda. From 1988 to 1989, Milosevic's supporters held a campaign of street protests called the Anti-Bureaucratic Revolution. These protests led to the downfall of the Vojvodina, Kosovo, and Montenegro governments. New governments came into power headed by Milosevic cronies. As Serb nationalists took over more parts of the government, Yugoslavia's other ethnic groups embraced nationalism as well. And tensions continued to escalate in Kosovo. In March 1989, Kosovo's Legislative Assembly, which was now full of Milosevic supporters, voted to abandon their autonomous status and give more power to Belgrade. And just like that, Kosovo went from an autonomous province to a Serbian colony. It was during this period that the Kosovo separatist movement began to take shape. The Democratic League of Kosovo, or LDK, was the primary political party advocating for the ethnic Albanians of Kosovo. The leader of the LDK was Ibrahim Rugova. Rugova was non violent and advocated passive resistance as a means to achieve independence. Under his leadership, the people of Kosovo created a parallel shadow government that operated independently of Belgrade. In the spring of 1989, Slobodan Milosevic became president of the Presidency of the Socialist Republic of Serbia. Simply put, he was now the leader of Serbia. The following month, He traveled to Kosovo to celebrate the 600-year anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo of 1389. We discuss this battle in Episode 2 of this series. Even though Milosevic tried to downplay any nationalist rhetoric, Serbs throughout Yugoslavia were beginning to see him as a hero. During the celebration, Slobodan Milosevic delivered a speech before nearly a million Serbs. In his speech, he seemed to promote unity of all Yugoslav people and avoided nationalist rhetoric. Serbia has never had only Serbs living in it. Today, more than in the past, members of other peoples and nationalities also live in it. This is not a disadvantage for Serbia. I am truly convinced that it is its advantage. National composition of almost all countries in the world today, particularly developed ones, has also been changing in this direction. Citizens of different nationalities, religions, and races have been living together more and more frequently and more and more successfully. But his actions spoke otherwise. With Milosevic in charge of Serbia, anti-Catholic and anti-Croatian rhetoric became commonplace. Government officials and the media highlighted the atrocities perpetrated by the Ustasi fascists during World War II. Catholic conspiracy theories were allowed to run rampant and even repeated by the government and media. Ethnic Albanians were also targeted by similar bigotry. The media portrayed them as disloyal, aggressive, and sexual deviants. Yugoslavia's Muslim Bosnian population was also slandered. They were accused of killing Serb babies and kidnapping Serb girls for their harems. Not all Serbs agreed with this nationalist atmosphere. In 1990, a group of liberal Serb academics created a magazine called Vreme. Vreme aligned itself against Milosevic, but he never bothered to shut them down. Slobodan Milosevic distanced himself from the nationalist rhetoric and was careful not to act like a dictator. One of the editors of Vreme magazine believed he used them as proof of his liberalism. He lets this small magazine operate, because he knows we cannot threaten him. Who reads us? A few professors, diplomats and foreign journalists. Most dictators would not tolerate us, but he knows our existence is good for him. We are a proof that a bit of democracy continues in this country. The moment our publication grows, he will close us down. Warren Zimmerman, the last U.S. ambassador to Yugoslavia, had similar feelings about Milosevic. Milosevic makes a stunning first impression on those who do not have the information to refute his often erroneous assertions. Unfortunately, the man is almost totally dominated by his dark side. The Congress of the League of Communists of Yugoslavia The Congress of the League of Communists of Yugoslavia was a meeting of Yugoslavia's communist influencers and politicians. They met every five years to discuss and formulate policies for Yugoslavia's communist party. In January 1990, the 14th Congress of the League of Communists of Yugoslavia met in Belgrade. The number one item on their agenda was to discuss the issues threatening to tear the country apart. Instead, the meeting devolved into a heated argument between the Slovenian and Serbian delegations. They could not come to an agreement on the future of the Communist Party or the future of Yugoslavia. The main point of disagreement was how much autonomy the individual republics should have. Slovenia, supported by Croatia, wanted less centralization and more autonomy. Serbia, on the other hand, wanted a one-person, one-vote policy. Since the Serbs were the largest demographic in Yugoslavia, such a policy favored them. Slobodan Milosevic headed the Serbian delegation. However, his supporters now controlled the governments of the Vojvodina and Kosovo provinces, which each had one vote. This meant that Milosevic had three votes which he could use to veto any policy he disliked. He used this voting block to strike down Slovenia's motions for less centralization. After two days of wrangling, the Slovene and Croatian delegation stormed out of the Congress. They were soon followed by Macedonia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. That was the end of Yugoslavia's Communist Party there would never be another Congress of the League of Communists. Slovenia and Croatia Politics in Yugoslavia had been controlled by a single party for almost 45 years. But now that the League of Communists of Yugoslavia was dissolved, the Yugoslav republics were free to form their own parties. After walking out of the Congress in January, Slovenia and Croatia began preparing to leave Yugoslavia. All of the republics decided to hold elections, with Slovenia and Croatia hoping to use them as stepping stones to independence. Elections were held in April 1990, and nationalist politicians won most of them. In Croatia, Intellectual and part-time politician Franjo Tuđman was elected presidency of the Presidency of the Socialist Republic of Croatia. But the Serb minority in Croatia, known as Croatian Serbs, had no desire to live under a Croatian government. Milan Martic, a Croatian Serb police chief, organized a Serb militia and took over the Krajina area of Croatia. Soon afterwards, Yugoslavia's National Armed Forces, the JNA, issued a statement promising to protect Serb minorities in the individual republics. The JNA had become predominantly Serb during Milosevic's rise to power. The following month, the Croatian Serbs declared Krajina an autonomous state, calling it the Republic of Serb Krajina. With this declaration, Croatia lost nearly a third of its territory to a minority, militant group backed by the federal government. Elections in Bosnia Bosnia and Herzegovina held general elections in November 1990. Not surprisingly, the results went along ethnic lines. The three victorious political parties were the Bosniak Party of Democratic Action, or SDA, the Serbian Democratic Party, or SDS, the Croatian Democratic Union, or HDZBIH. These three parties agreed to work together, albeit within their own ethnic groups. This meant the presidency of the Presidency of the Socialist Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina would be Bosniak while the president of the parliament would be a Serb and the prime minister would be a Croat. This seemed like a reasonable compromise and everyone hoped for the best. And perhaps if Yugoslavia had remained a functioning state, things might have turned out better. Unfortunately, 1991 happened. The U.S. Reaction The United States government was concerned about allegations of human rights abuses in Kosovo. In August 1990, Senator Bob Dole of Kansas visited Kosovo to investigate these allegations. Traveling with Bob Dole was his Republican colleague, Senator Don Nichols of Oklahoma. When they returned to the states, both men expressed concern over the usurpation of the ethnic Albanians' rights in Kosovo. In November 1990, as the U.S. Congress was discussing its foreign appropriations, Senator Nichols suggested an amendment to withdraw foreign aid from Yugoslavia. Known as the Nichols Amendment, it was to go into effect six months later if conditions did not improve in the Balkans. In addition to cutting off U.S. foreign aid, which only amounted to $5 million, The Nichols Amendment also required the United States block any international loans to Yugoslavia. The Nichols Amendment angered everybody in Yugoslavia. Serbia accused the Americans of interfering in their internal affairs and Croatia accused the Americans of punishing the whole country for the actions of the Serbs. That same month, U.S. diplomat Warren Zimmerman was appointed ambassador to Yugoslavia. Like Bob Dole and Don Nichols, Zimmerman was very vocal about the treatment of ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Ambassador Zimmerman summed up the plight in Kosovo as follows. Since Milosevic's move against them in 1989, their situation has progressively worsened. Kosovo today represents the worst human rights problem in Europe. The Yugoslav army and the Serbian police enjoyed a virtual monopoly of power in Kosovo. Slobodan Milosevic was so furious with Zimmerman and the United States, he refused to meet with the ambassador for nine months. Croatia declares independence. In 1991, Croatian defense minister Martin Spigeli was recorded on tape negotiating an arms shipment. Serbia and the other republics suspected that Croatia was planning to leave the federation. These suspicions turned out to be well-founded. In February 1991, Slovenia and Croatia suspended federal laws in their states. This sparked demonstrations in Belgrade as many Serbs pinned the blame on Slobodan Milosevic and his nationalist tendencies. Law enforcement was sent to break up the demonstrations leading to the deaths of two people. Fears of secession increased a few days later when the European Parliament issued a resolution supporting independence for the Yugoslav states and provinces. The following month, in April 1991, clashes broke out between Croatian law enforcement and Croatian Serbs. Croatian Serb militants had taken over the national park in Plitvice near the Bosnian border. Croatian police moved in to expel the militants, resulting in two deaths, one from each side. Tensions continued to escalate when the federal government sent the army to protect the Croatian Serbs. A tense standoff resulted as both sides marked out areas of control with roadblocks and checkpoints. The next month, a national referendum showed that 93% of Croatians wanted independence. The international community sent mixed signals which only worsened the situation. The European Community, or EC, was the predecessor of the EU and wanted Yugoslavia to remain a single nation. The U.S. Congress, led by Senators Bob Dole and Dana Rohrabacher of California, voted in support of independence for Croatia and Slovenia. But U.S. Secretary of State James Baker declared Slovenia and Croatia could not unilaterally declare independence. Any such move, he said, was illegal and illegitimate. It is not clear how the United States could decide what was legal and illegal in a sovereign nation. These conflicting messages from the EC and the U.S. caused all parties in Yugoslavia to grow more stubborn and less willing to negotiate. And on June 25, 1991, Slovenia and Croatia became the first two republics to declare their independence. Slovenia's Independence Slovenia was always a bit of an outlier in Yugoslavia. Culturally and economically, it was somewhat different from the other Yugoslav republics. Slovenia was the most economically prosperous of all the Yugoslav republics. And culturally, it was more European than Balkan. It was also predominantly Catholic, which may explain why it aligned with Croatia on so many issues. Another significant factor about Slovenia was that, unlike the other republics, it did not have a large ethnic minority. All of this helped convince Slovenia that it could go its own way without Yugoslavia. After Josep Tito died, Slovenia grew politically bolder. In fact, throughout the 1980s, Slovenia had become more and more autonomous. In February 1989, in the midst of the Kosovo crisis, Milan Kucan, president of Slovenia's Communist Party, walked out of a Central Committee meeting in protest of Slobodan Milosevic's actions. He accused the Serbs of conspiring to dominate the Yugoslav government and expressed his support for the ethnic Albanians of Kosovo. Before he left the meeting, he stated that it might be time for Slovenia to separate from Yugoslavia. When Slovenia declared its independence in June 1991, the JNA sent troops to occupy the republic. But the JNA soldiers did not really want to fight. Ethnicity was more important than national unity, and there were not many Serbs in Slovenia. Slovenia did not really have an army and could not put up much resistance. Instead, it went to the United Nations to request help against Yugoslavia. The UN brokered a ceasefire between Slovenia and the Yugoslav government in July 1991, and this led to the Brioni Agreement. The Brioni Agreement The Brioni Agreement, named after the Brioni Islands off the coast of Croatia and the Adriatic Sea, ended the half-hearted fighting in Slovenia. Signed on July 7, 1991, it declared a ceasefire, a three-month hold on Slovenia's independence, and an agreement to continue negotiating about Yugoslavia's future. The fighting was now over in Slovenia. And with 44 JNA soldiers and 18 Slovene militants killed, it was the shortest and least bloody war of the entire Balkans conflict. But things were different in Croatia where Croats and JNA-backed Croatian Serbs were now fighting. The United States' fresh off its victory in Iraq expressed concern about the violence in the Balkans. This worried the European community who wanted to keep the Americans out of the conflict. They presented a united front in support of Slovenian and Croatian independence. The EC sent two diplomats, Peter Carrington of Great Britain and Jose Cuteliero of Portugal, to broker an agreement. The Situation in Bosnia The fighting in Croatia between Croats and Croatian Serbs made everyone realize the danger they were getting into. As early as the spring of 1991, political observers cautioned that Bosnia could be much worse. Croatia had two ethnic groups fighting each other, Serbs and Croats. Bosnia had three ethnic groups, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks. And while Bosnian Muslims were the majority, there were also large Serb and Croat minorities. In June 1991, Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims signed the Zulfikar Pashik Karadžić Agreement. This agreement stipulated Bosnia-Herzegovina would be a single autonomous state but remain in a loose union with Serbia and Montenegro. Bosnian Croats did not like this agreement because they had been left out. Bosnian Croats, nearly 17% of Bosnia, made it clear they were ready to secede from Bosnia and join with neighboring Croatia. The Bosnian Croats were not alone in this sentiment. Neither the United States nor the European community were interested in the Zofikar Pasha Karadzic agreement. And truth be told, Bosnian President Aliyah Izetbegovic did not care for it either, even though it was his representatives that signed the agreement. President Izetbegovic was a fairly devout Muslim. If Bosnia became independent, he wanted it to be recognized as a Muslim nation in the Balkans. And when he visited other Muslim countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, he expressed this same desire. But these statements alarmed the Bosnian Serbs who made up nearly a third of Bosnia's population. They had no desire to live in an Islamic nation no matter how liberal it was. Croatia, the summer of 1991. Croatia's struggle for independence began 20 years earlier with the Croatian Spring of 1971, which we discussed in the previous episode. The Croatian Spring was a movement to increase Croatia's autonomy and promote Croatian culture. Marshal Tito, a Croat himself, shut the movement down due to its nationalist overtones. Many Croats were still angry about how that turned out. However, Tito's government did implement some of their requests. Hence, Croatia was already prepared when the opportunity came in 1991. Furthermore, there was a large Croatian diaspora, especially in Germany, that financially supported the independence movement. Croatian President Franjo Tuđman was one of the original organizers of the Croatian Spring back in 1971. When Tito cracked down on the movement, Tudjman was imprisoned and lost his military rank. After Tito's death, Tudjman, a professor of political science, began speculating on a potential framework for an independent Croatia. He even went so far as to design a flag for this hypothetical state. Tudjman's flag design angered Croatia's Serbs. It bore a striking resemblance to the Ustasi state flag, which had killed thousands of Serbs during World War II. Friction between Croats and Croatian Serbs has always been an issue. The European community hoped the Brioni Agreement discussed earlier would help create lasting peace in the Balkans. With the Brioni Agreement, the EC recognized Slovenia's and Croatia's independence and sent observers to monitor the situation. And as tensions escalated, the EC continued to engage both sides in talks, hoping for a peaceful settlement. The reality was that Croatia could not break away from Yugoslavia as easily as Slovenia had. Croatian Serbs were a sizable minority and dominated certain areas of Croatia. Krajina and Slavonia and northeast Croatia contained large numbers of ethnic Serbs. In July 1991, the JNA began shelling two coastal cities in southern Croatia, Split and Dubronovic. Located on the Adriatic Sea between Croatia and Italy, both cities were popular tourist destinations. The international community condemned these attacks, but the JNA said they were targeting Ustashi terrorists. But it is believed they were really trying to force Croatia to negotiate something more favorable than the Brioni agreement. By the end of July, it was clear that peace was not forthcoming. Talks broke down and President Tudjman of Croatia walked away from the negotiating table. Two weeks later, Milosevic did the same. The shelling continued and Frenjo Tujman issued an ultimatum to the JNA on August 22nd. Leave Croatia or prepare for war. Three days later, war broke out. It began with the Battle of Vukovar on August 25th, 1991. Located in northeast Croatia, Vukovar sat across the Danube River from the Serbian province of Vojvodina. The JNA had been using Vukovar to funnel weapons and supplies to the Croatian Serb militants. Croatia's small military could not stand against the full might of the Yugoslav National Army. President Frenjo Tudjman knew this, but he felt he had to make a stand somewhere, and Vukovar was the place. He concentrated all of his forces in Vukovar and prepared to defend the city at all costs. The JNA one of the largest armies in Europe, surrounded Vukovar and began shelling it with artillery. Meanwhile, 36,000 JNA troops moved in, supported by tanks, helicopters, and warplanes. The Croatian defenders, many of whom were fighting in jeans and sneakers, only had light arms and moved about in civilian vehicles. With barely 2,000 soldiers, the Croats fought bravely, destroying dozens of JNA tanks. But Vukovar was under siege. With the JNA blocking supplies, the city's 15,000 residents faced starvation. On two occasions, the Croats tried to break the siege, but were overpowered both times. The world looked on, shocked at the violence. This type of fighting had not been seen in Europe since the Second World War, and no one knew what to do. The European community was divided. Croatia's traditional allies, Austria, Germany, Italy, Denmark, and Hungary, supported its independence. But other European nations hesitated. Most of these nations had their own internal nationalist independence movements and did not want them influenced by the events in Yugoslavia. Great Britain had Irish and Scottish nationalist movements, France had a Corsican nationalist movement, and Spain had a Basque nationalist movement. The Soviet Union wanted Yugoslavia to remain as it was. But with a crumbling union, a failed communist coup, and the impending fall of communism, there was not much the Soviets could do. The United States was concerned about the situation, but did not want to commit military or financial resources. Two Peace Conferences The Europeans were desperate to prevent the violence in Croatia from spreading to Bosnia. The European Economic Community scrambled to organize a conference to discuss maintaining the peace in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The first meeting of the International Conference on the former Yugoslavia was held in London in August 1991. From this meeting came a proposal that suggested Yugoslavia continue to exist through a loose confederation. This proposal, and many others like it, was shot down by Slobodan Milosevic. He wanted a Serbian superstate that stretched beyond the borders of Serbia. The European community held another conference at The Hague in the Netherlands in September 1991. A peace agreement was hammered out and signed by all six Yugoslav republics. The agreement stipulated a future peace conference after violence in Croatia had subsided. But the violence did not subside and Serbs and Croats broke multiple ceasefires. So the agreement never went into effect. Bosnian Foreign Minister Haris Selajic, upset about the failed proposals, asked for international military intervention. He warned that condemnations and sanctions will not turn Milosevic and the Serbs into pacifists. Bosnia, Autumn, 1991 As summer turned to autumn, the European community's hope to maintain peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina was looking dim. Bosnian president Alija Izetbegović had rejected the Zulfikar Pasha Karadžić agreement and was preparing for independence. Some say Izetbegović's change of heart came after touring the Muslim world. After receiving words of support from other Muslim leaders, his desire for Bosnian independence grew stronger. But there may have been other factors involved. In September 1991, a secret document was leaked describing how the Republic of Serbia and the Bosnian Serbs could create a Serbian super-state. This secret plan showed just how far the Serbs were prepared to go. In the next episode, we'll discuss the beginning of the Bosnian War. <laughs> You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 1 of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-8. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Hajaj ibn Yusuf sends another army under first Abdurrahman ibn al ashath and then Uthman ibn Qatan to deal with Shabib ibn Yazid and the Khawarij. Shabib ibn Yazid defeats this army, then leads his Khawadij forces into the mountains for the summer. Three months later, the Khawadij come down from the mountain, larger and stronger, and move towards Madain, where he began corresponding with Mutarif, the city's governor. Desperate, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf ordered every able-bodied man in Kufa to join the fight. He also sent word to the caliph, Abdul Malik, to send Syrian troops to assist. Now, Shabib is faced with three different armies, the one in Mada'in, the large force from Kufa, and the approaching Syrian troops. Now, let's return to the situation in Mada'in. When we left off in the last episode, Shabib was trying to explain himself to the new governor of Mada'in, Mutarif. However, when it became clear that Mutarif was not going to join his cause, Shabib left Mada'in to face one of the two armies coming towards him, either the one from Kufa, led by Atab ibn Warqa, or to deal with the Syrians. Inevitably, he decided to deal with the Kufans, led by Atab ibn Warqa, first. The force coming from Kufa, led by Atab ibn Warqa, consisted of every able-bodied man in Kufa, hence it was a very large fighting force, according to some reports, around 40,000 men strong. Atab ibn Warqa was accompanied by Zohra ibn Hawiya, who we introduced in the previous episode, as an old warrior and veteran of the initial conquest of Persia. By this time, Shabib's forces numbered roughly 1,000. Eventually, the two sides lined up to fight that is, the 1,000 men under Shabib and the 40,000 men coming from Kufa under Atab ibn Borka. Before they actually got into the fight, both sides received motivational speeches from their commanders. However, Atab ibn Wardqa immediately got the feeling that his troops weren't really ready for this fight. And as it turns out, once the battle began, despite the large numbers under Atab ibn Wardqa, the same thing happened as has happened before. The Kufin lines fell apart and disintegrated almost as soon as the Khawarij attacked. This battle, when, despite these large numbers, 40,000 people, 40 times the number of Shabib's Khawarij forces, despite these large numbers and these heavy numerical advantages, this was once again a disaster for the Umayyad's. Most of the men split and run away as soon as the khawarij put pressure on the Umayyad lines. The few who did stand firm, they were quickly overwhelmed. And the commander himself, Atab ibn Warqa, he happened to be sitting on a carpet behind his front lines. He was surrounded by a few of his most stalwart and courageous men. But as soon as that front line of Umayyad soldiers from Kufa fell apart, as soon as they fled and broke rank, Atab ibn Warqa and his few bodyguards, so to speak, were immediately exposed. So the front line fell apart. The Khawadij attacked Atab ibn Warqa and his guards. They fought bravely, but Atab and his few guards were no match for the many, many Khawadij attacking them. They were quickly defeated and Atab ibn Warqa himself was killed. Regarding Zohra ibn Hawiya, the old warrior we mentioned earlier, he happened to get trampled and killed by horses. As it turns out, he was just too old and not fast enough to get out of the way. It's not as if the Khawarij deliberately targeted him. He just could not get out of the way of the horses uh, uh, under the Khawarij. When Shabib found out about Zohra's death, he expressed sorrow for this because he knew who Zohra was. Zohra, as we mentioned in the previous episode, was a bit of a legend for his exploits during the conquest of Iraq and Iran, or Iraq and Persia is probably more correct. But he was, uh, even though he was sorry about having to kill this legend, he did say that the man brought it on himself because, according to Shabib, uh, Zuhra ibn Hawiya had left Islam.